Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to the Number the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McClain. So, Flynn, if everything has gone according to plan, there should have been a press release issued this morning saying that we're joining Evergreen Podcast. We're, we're very excited about that and proud to be joining the Evergreen family. Yes, we're uh, very excited to, to start this, this new chapter in, in, our, in our podcast and looking forward to, to growing a little bit. As we've said before, we really deeply appreciate everyone listening. This is going to be our two-part season finale. We've got a big couple of episodes coming up. Very, very cool that we got all four of the key principles from Backstreet's Magazine over the 40 years. And uh, hopefully people are going to enjoy it. So with that, let's get to the Bruce news of the week, which is, of course, that he has taken over Broadway once again. <laughs> yes, he's not only on Broadway, he is the only only performer on Broadway. And that's that's a pretty cool feeling. Yes, it's not Springsteen on Broadway right now. It is Springsteen is Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. They should have changed yeah. the name. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's come back. He's tweaked the show a little bit. Are we going to give spoilers here, Hal, or just kind of let it fly? Yeah, I think we got to let it fly, Flynn. You know, All right, this is a Bruce Springsteen podcast. We haven't seen it yet. Of course, we know what happened, and hopefully, we're going to both get to see it later. But we did predict that I'll See You in My Dreams would be the finale, that it, that is the case. What is unexpected, uh, Born to Run omitted from the show. And uh, that seems very surprising to me. Bruce has explained his rationale. Landau did an interview today saying that he said to Bruce, hey, you sure you don't want to encore with Born to Run? And Bruce was like, no, this is the show as it is now. It's what I feel and it's where it should end. And that's what I'm going to do. So... No Born to Run, still a little surprising considering the importance of Born to Run and the fact the book is named Born to Run, but that's the way it is at the moment. Well, I guess he, he wanted to change the show a bit, and uh, and he did, and and I'll see you in my dreams. I mean, for the first time we heard it on Letter to You last year, I'm like, th that's exactly what he was saying in that in that closing monologue of, of the show, and so it's... It fits perfectly. It just has a, has a different feel to the end, of the end of the night. The song has tremendous emotional impact. So it makes the end much more of a tearjerker, I think. And, and we saw the emotional impact it had on Landau himself in the Letter to You documentary. It really does tie in well, as you were saying, with the themes that he had discussed throughout the entire show in the earlier run. So, uh, not a surprise that it's there, but again, I, I am a little surprised. No born to run, but I get it. Yeah, me too. I uh, I'm surprised, but you're right. It just it feels right, or it's I haven't seen it, but I'm sure it's, it's I'm sure it feels right. Uh, what also feels right to me was the swap out of Tom Joad for uh, for American Skin. Yeah, and he 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 talks more about what's going on in the country the last couple of years, um, and I'm look I'm really looking forward to that. I'm I'm. It's, I've heard that the arrangement is just just spot on perfect, which you know he always does. But it's I'm looking forward to hearing this particular arrangement of American Skin. Now the real wild card of the show is <laughs> that he's got fire in there as a duet <laughs> with Patty. I can't wait to hear that and replacing Brilliant Disguise. 
American Skin, definitely under the circumstances, not a huge shocker that it's in the show. We've already discussed I'll See You in My Dreams, but Fire is a, is a surprise. That is a very odd choice. Uh, but apparently Patty sings a good ch- a good chunk of the song. So the whole uh, the whole. Oh, I date- didn't hear that. You- okay. Yeah, that's what I, I was reading. Ken Rosen's review on, on Backstreet's, on the Backstreet's news page. And uh, he's he said that for him... he. For him, the song has gotten kind of cringeworthy in the Me Too era about your words, they speak, but your eyes, they lie. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly totally kosher for, for, for these times. And letting her sing more of the song, maybe even taking the lead, gives a little bit, uh, t- takes a little less, takes some of that cringe, cringiness away from it. Well, it seems to be going over really well. So I, I am excited to to see that one. And he's done three or four shows. I think it is by now. They've all been the same. That's to be expected. It is a Broadway show. And it's just, as we started by saying, really good to have him back. Yeah, it feels it feels good knowing that uh, that he's performing on stage. And even if we're not there, just knowing he's he's singing and telling his stories uh, just makes the world a better place. Yes, it does. And he, he's, he's really, we don't want to get too much into hagiography here. You know, we try to stay away from that on this show, but <laughs> really what, what he, it sounds like what he's doing in the, in the face of the pandemic and what society has been through and, and what he's put together, it really does sound magnificent. So, and as you just said, you wouldn't expect anything different from him, but uh, still, it's, it's amazing. And, and at the age of 71, going on 72. So really uh, very exciting that he's doing that. And another thing that he continues doing is his radio show during all this activity. The one that aired last week, The Nighttime is the Right Time. I don't know if there's so much to say about this show <laughs> other than I'm totally with him on the title. The Nighttime is the Right Time. <laughs> hey, show a little faith. There's magic in the night. Uh, I, thought, I thought the coolest thing about uh, about this week's show was he was talking about driving to Coney Island with uh, Jimmy Iovine and, and Jimmy's uh, orange Mercedes Benz. It seems like a very odd color to to get a Mercedes in, but Jimmy, you know, you do you. Jimmy is a one of a kind. That <laughs> is for sure from what everyone says. And if you read the stories about him, so and what a life he has led. True. And Bruce actually kind of gives him credit for all the different roles and all the different stuff he's done over his over his career in a very, very humorous Bruce like way. Yes. Well, of course, he's actually written a song about him or at least in part about him. (laughs) One line about him. Come on. Okay. well, let's move on to our main subject of the evening. And this is just for us an amazing, amazing treat. We are bringing together the four key figures from Backstreet's magazine, which, of course, has been the preeminent source of Bruce News for 40 plus years. And with that, Flynn, would you like to do the honors? Uh, I would. Uh, Charles R. Cross, he uh, founded Backstreet's magazine in 1980. He uh, handed out copies of the the first issue at Springsteen's October 24th show, October 24th, 1980 show in Seattle. Uh, he went on to edit The Rocket, Seattle's music newspaper, and uh, he wrote biographies of uh, Kirk Cobain and Jimi Hendrix, as well as the, the Backstreet Springsteen book and, uh, and Led Zeppelin and Hart. Uh, Charlie, it is an honor. It is an honor to welcome you to the podcast. You are welcome here. Very glad to yeah. be here. Thank you. Uh, Eric Flanagan, he joined Backstreet's in 1986. Uh, he worked with Charlie as managing editor until about 1991. Eric had a hand in the hardback 
Backstreet Springsteen book as well, released in 1989. And also co-authored the, the Led Zeppelin book with Charlie. And uh, he's gone on to a career in electronic media and now works in the music business. Eric, glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Flynn. You might know me better by my name, Lynn Elder. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to admit to that. Wow. Wow, big that's a big reveal. That's a big one. All right. And then after Eric moved to L.A. in 1981, Jonathan Pont came on for two years, managing the magazine through the Human Touch and Lucky Town era. Afterwards, he went on to work in the business press uh, for about a decade in New York, and he's now a certified financial planner. Jonathan, welcome back to the Number But The Great podcast. It's good to be here. It's nice to be with everyone. And in 1993, Jonathan, Jonathan and Charlie welcomed Chris Phillips to Backstreet's. Chris moved to Seattle after college, and uh, he sent a little note to Backstreet's just to say hello and see if he can contribute, and uh, he did. Uh, by the late 1990s, he had taken over the entire business, and he has, he's navigated Backstreet's into the internet age. Chris, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for getting everybody together. We were just saying it's been a long time since we've all seen each other. Uh, you know, at least virtually we're in the same room. So thanks for having us. Yes. Well, when was the last time you guys were all in the same room? We were just saying it was it was at a restaurant in New York in roughly 2014. I mean, yeah. it's being, you know, spread out as we are, like on both coasts and all that. It, it's been hard to all be in the same place at once. But um, I mean we're in touch on the reg anyway, so. Yes, yes, very true. I, I believe that uh, in addition to, to Chris being the, I guess he's credited on the, in the magazine as the, as the editor and art director, uh, the other three are, they're still listed as associate editors. So everyone is definitely involved all 40 years later. Everybody. I mean, once no one you leaves. get in, there's, there's really no getting out, you know? <laughs> See, it's not Backstreet's Magazine, it's Backstreet's Mafia. <laughs> and I'm like the only one who's not a member of that because Flynn, you contribute to the magazine as well. And everyone but Hal, I mean, you know, at this point, you've written at least one uh, of the. Uh, um, I think two. The archive shows two. for us. So yeah. So yeah. you know. So you're in the club, yeah. Hal. You're in the club. That's right. Hal, you don't know, but you are actually already now the editor of Backstreet's magazine. Without <laughs> <knowing>. <laughs> Good luck. Hey, Hal, when's that issue coming out? Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to work on that immediately after the show. Yeah, but what Chris said really is part of the deal. I mean, all of us were friends and it, you know, I think for everybody, it never really was a job. It was uh, kind of uh, a mission, so to speak. And um, so it's, it, I, I mean, I, I talk about Bruce almost as much today, it seems today, particularly today, as uh I think I do, I did uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So maybe not in quite the glowing reviews that I would have given Darkness on the Edge of Town for, uh, for, for, for some of the other stuff, but, but it's, it still remains part of my life and I think part of all these guys' lives, obviously. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, sure. you know, I, I still think of myself as, you know, the, the new guy to the Backstreet's crew, but I started when I was 22 and I'm now 50. So, you know, it's, this has been my life, you know, and, and these, these guys are my family and uh, I'm so grateful that, you know, they never fully got out um, and that we've all managed to rope each other back in from time to time. Cause I mean, you know, all the stuff we do uh, really depends on everybody here, you know? So Charlie, take us back. I, I'm not sure how big fanzines were in 1980. I know that 
Relix existed in the dead community when you started this, but could you have imagined it would still be going 40 years later? Uh, absolutely not. Um, you know, fanzines in the era I grew up, there were a lot of fanzines, but they were always Xerox things that were at a record import store on the corner kind of thing. And they were always like a few issues of somebody being impassioned. Um, so the idea to start Backstreets really isn't an isn't a original idea by any stretch, but I would argue that the sustainability, how long the magazine has remained, the cohesion of the community, um, and, and in some ways the fact that Bruce is a fascinating subject, that there's a lot of different avenues to explore, that's what in any way, in any way is unique about Backstreet's longevity. Um, really, there was a lot to say. That's that people used to ask, well, what do you write about? What is there to say about Bruce Springsteen? And the problem is we never, we never could fit everything we had to say in an issue of the magazine. Um, there always is a lot of stuff to say. Um, now, I'll bet it may not be stuff a general audience is even remotely interested in, <laughs> but the people that care, care a lot, and, and there is a lot to say. Yes, I was rereading uh, the intro to the book last night that you wrote, and you said this is this magazine in, this, in the book was for the guys who care about the alternate titles to the Born to Run album. And, and I remember the magazine, you said the magazine was for those guys who felt, who felt that huge rush when the opening chords of Rosalita started. And that's, that's us, man. And, uh, and thank you again for doing, for, for doing it. Well, I think I would rewrite that now if I did write it and say the guys, and I would say the guys and the gals because okay. uh, it, it, it might be more, there, there may be more guys pushing each other down at the front still, which is kind of a bizarre thing that Bruce still attracts more of a guy audience, uh, but nonetheless, it's a certainly gender mixed. And that, right. that's a good point. That's something I think about as I'm you know, looking around and here's you know, six guys talking Bruce one of the things that we've we've been trying to do more of is bring women into the mix. Uh, Karen Rose has been a, a great contributor for quite a while now, but you know, even prior to her, I would say that you know we've always had a lot of good contributors like um, uh, Debbie Rothenberg, photographer. You know, there's such a hardcore uh, a group of women in the fan base too that have all been part of this even uh, even if not in this group of four you know and holly care price rest in peace yeah, was, uh, as fanatical as anybody for uh for a number of years and you you know so yeah she wrote for the magazine early on too and she continued up until the end really i mean you know she was writing the uh archive series reports for us and she was so enthusiastic about that even as she was like undergoing cancer treatments, you know, like she really wanted to write the Jode tour. And so I contacted her when I knew a Jode show was coming up. She was like, oh yes, well I, you know, I'll just be getting over the awfulness that I feel from the cancer treatment. It should be just the right window, you know? And she was, yeah, she was super into it. Well, she did, she wrote the, the Meadowlands 81 piece that uh, released last summer. And right. Then, and then, and I know she wasn't feeling very well, but, but she wanted to do it. She she lived that river tour. She was, she went all over the place. Yeah. And she saw a lot of shows and had a lot of great stories. And, you know, I wish she had written that book. She kept talking about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. The darkness tour 
you know, still looms high. The and the seventy six shows and the seventy seven shows those those still loom high in terms of tapes. Uh, but for for some reason, the River Tour, as time goes by, that looks better than it did in nineteen in the eighties. For some, it, mm-hmm. it 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 seems uh, like maybe they had it more together on that that eighty eighty one River Tour. Um, you know, I don't know. I grew up, I, I certainly thought the Born in the USA shows were exciting, but in retrospect, I don't think about those as much as I think about the River shows um, where, where they really kind of had the stadium big sound down, but they weren't playing stadiums for the most part, except in Europe. So Charlie, you actually saw the Darkness tour, and I think that makes you the first person who's been on our show who, who saw that tour in person. Well, wait, Eric, didn't you see Darkness shows as well? No, my first show was Seattle Center Coliseum, October okay, 24th, 1980. Show. Backstreet yeah. Show. Yeah, yeah. No, the darkness shows were, were you know, I mean, seeing Prove It All Night in that context uh, was really something. Um, and there were, there were things that he, it seemed like he was doing. And of course, it's pre-internet. So you're thinking you're seeing magic every night. And you think that what you're seeing... You, you don't realize that there's the, the raps are kind of the same and the stories are kind of the same. We didn't really know all that until we started comparing tapes, but um, yeah. Uh, but, but in comparison, Eric is gonna know this statistically far more than I, what's the average darkness show? And are we looking at, you know, every darkness show is less than two hours um, for the no, most part. No. <clears throat> It's about, you know, it, they, they clock in at somewhere between 2.30 and 2.45, generally speaking. Yeah. Well, I was asleep for part of them, so I, I remember <laughs> that. seems hard to believe. I'm remembering darkness significantly shorter than... than well, by than river movies. standards, yeah. where the show was yeah. pushing three and a half and, you yeah. know, inching above that. Sure, it was shorter. Um, yeah. You know, it was a, it was a tight... You know, first set kind of comes in around 90, second set around 60, and then you had the encore. Well, in any case, we, we, we wish Backstreets was around during darkness. If only we mm-hmm. all could have been younger and seen all those darkness shows. And, uh, um, but there weren't that many fans. I think it's still important for people to remember apocryphally that, that in darkness, Bruce was, he wasn't selling out every arena even in, on that tour. So it was not a surefire hit. Um, by the standards that that happened in 1981 and happened in 1984. And- no, Charlie, you're right. You're right <clears throat> that because the so much of the fan base is really built around those northeast markets where Bruce did get bigger, faster, and could you know sell out three nights at Madison Square Garden in 1978, having also played Passaic, the Palladium, and and points in between, and then you come out west. You know, he's playing 3,000 seater in Port or 2,000 seater in Portland. He ends up in a 5,000 seater in December in uh, Seattle. And as we kind of made clear when the Winterland releases came out through the archive release, they they weren't even sure San Francisco was a market that they'd conquered yet. You know, they were worried about selling out two nights at Winterland there. So, you know, you're right. Darkness was not every city was already converted. Um, I do think every single person who saw a darkness show brought somebody to a river show. Like that was what kicked it up to like multiple night arena level. Yeah. That's what happened for me. You know, I mean, I think I brought uh, 50 people to uh, a river show or more um, because the darkness shows, particularly the December show 
was just like, you know, it was something. It, you kept talking about it and raving about it as I did in the first issue of Backstreets. And you, it sounds like you're making it up, what happened. It, it, <laughs> it, uh, I, I, I'm not completely sure looking back with, uh, with so much time, 40 years since that show, that it was as, not as magical, but that it was, uh, he might've had more of an idea that what he was doing was gonna be history to a degree. I, 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 I give him less uh, spontaneity, I think now when I look back on it, but, uh, but it still was pretty un unbelievable to be at a show where the guy doesn't seem to care that people already paid for tickets. He's giving them more than they paid for. Um, <laughs> well, let's kind of talk about, it. you started the magazine out of Seattle. We, we, we talked with Dan French uh, about a month or so ago, and he said that when he started his fanzine point blank over in, in England, that it, he really he was able to network with a lot of people basically all over Europe. How long did it take for, for the magazine to reach the, that Northeast central part of, of Bruce's, Bruce's uh, fan base? Uh, five years before it really started getting, I mean, the, the actual numbers on how many people subscribe to Backstreet's, you know, two through 11 are actually pretty damn small. I mean, I could almost recite every name off the top of my head. <laughs> Literally, we didn't have labels. People got hand-addressed, you oh, know, wow. um, yeah. things. And then I bought a K-Pro printer, which I wish I had because I bet that's worth more than my house because it would be in an antique archive. But it weighed about 100 pounds and it would print dot matrix printers. And that was the first thing. And I want to say that was 19... I don't know, 83, maybe, I don't know, something like that. But there, there weren't, it, it really wasn't until I, we printed, uh, my aunt died and left me $10,000 um, in 1984. And um, that's what paid for the printing, the printing bill of uh, Backstreet's, I'm trying to, I think it's number 10, it was $10,000. It was $10,000 was the printing bill. And, um, uh, so basically my aunt's inheritance went to printing that, but there were not 10,000 subscribers. There maybe were a thousand subscribers. I bet I gave out 9,000 copies of that issue. Um, I would drop ship it to a city that I was going to, you know, or, or pick it up or take it on an airline uh, plane with me to these big boxes of magazines and brochures. And, and I gave out 8,000 copies of that Backstreet's number 10 to people at shows with the idea that that would seed this magazine. And it, it sort of did, um, but a lot of people trashed them. I mean, I, I, I would still say the number of subscribers was not very high until 85, there became a lot more interest and, and, and the numbers started to pick up at that point. Well, you couldn't possibly imagine that this artist who, when you first started doing the magazine was just finding his audience would suddenly be the biggest rock star on the planet. Yeah, nobody, nobody envisioned that. I'm not sure Bruce envisioned that. I'm not even sure that John Landau envisioned that. Um, you know, I, I think the the goal for Bruce, and, and you guys jump in and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think Bruce thought that he would be, uh, I didn't think he, I, I don't think he ever thought he would be Madonna or Michael Jackson, which he was for one brief moment. I think the standard was something lower that, that, that he was thinking, even when he thought of, you know, where his career would be at the height. 
um, I think it leapfrogged beyond what anybody even imagined, you know, was even possible. Um, How did word get out about the magazine in, in 1984 and 1985? You just handing out copies that shows? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, that was, uh, there was no internet. Uh, you know, we put out ads in Goldmine. Um, and pretty soon, you know, uh, Eric and John were also uh, sent on the road at times and Chris uh, in a later era to, you know, try to try to spread the word. But a lot of it was uh, networking. A lot of it was record trading. It was, uh, it was almost more like, I mean, I had a pen pal at one point when I was a kid growing up, but that's kind of what Backstreets was. It was a way to connect with people in far off places. It was always less about, you know, the magazine and it was more about connection in a way. Um, and uh, that I think is still why it continues is that people want that connection. But, but it, it, it was, you know, it was literally writing letters or sending copies of things to people in France and Italy and, and England and, uh, and all over. Though the reality is that the bulk of the subscribers were in the U.S. because the postage, even in 1986, was significantly more to send the copy to. If Bruce were as popular as he is in Italy today, when Backstreets was, you know, sort of starting to do slick paper in the late 80s, we would sell every copy to Italy. We just do it in <laughs> Italian because um, the the level of his popularity in some of those foreign countries is so much greater than it was at that point. And they're fanatical in a way that people in New Jersey were kind of like, well, maybe I need to subscribe to this magazine or maybe not. But to people overseas, it was like an identity they were they were putting on. Um, and that's still the case. It is still the case. Yeah, we, we have so many readers in, uh, you know, not only Italy, but Spain and Sweden and the UK, uh, you know, all over Europe. Um, and, you know, clearly the organization knows it, too, because, you know, they spend more and more time overseas when uh, when the tours get going. And that's I mean, why so Bruce is doing this uh, three months in uh, London's Old Vic Theater. Or did I get that wrong? <laughs> oh, man. I was like, I was Close. Like... <laughs> Move the pond. <laughs> All right, I will so... say, like, you know, in, in 1984-85, I was... Uh, a junior high school student in deep South Georgia. And I discovered Backstreets because we used to have to cross the state line into Tallahassee, Florida to go to a good record store. And I'd go down there with my big brother and found Backstreets on their magazine rack. So, you know, by that point, that must've been 85. But by that point, you know, you had certainly made it to uh, the armpit of the South as we like to call it, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's how I discovered the magazine. Yeah, it's the same thing in San Francisco. I bought Backstreet's number, it was either number eight or number nine at Let It Be Records out in the avenues. Uh, Judah Street. Judah Street. Yeah. I, I was exactly talking right. about Let It Be Records today with my son because we were talking about uh, what do you call people that gather a ton of stuff in their houses or jam? Hoarders. 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 <laughs> that guy that ran Let It Be was the greatest yeah. hoarder I ever, I'd never <laughs> been in a place in my life as crazy as that store but he had some great stuff oh yeah uh, i think his name yeah, was cliff cliff, cliff yeah uh, yeah sure was <laughs> and he had like yeah. uh you know literally 800 teriyaki sauce packets <laughs> because he ordered teriyaki every night and threw it in the stack of record stores but but it, it was like as the fact that at least chris you may never have gone there but the fact that three of us know what let it be records smells like 
is yeah. part of what the the history of this world is. It's a lost world. There there are no record stores left that smell like teriyaki as much as that place. But <laughs> but it, it it that indeed was part of the world, just like the place Chris went in Tallahassee. You were Final you fever. Were, you were finding community by going yeah. to those places. And, uh, you know, it, it was what made me who I am. And I, I, I don't want to speak for the other three guys, but I think it, it's really what, what, what made all our personalities was, was that connection to record stores, to music, to the idea of an otherness that wasn't just the world we grew up in. Um, well, I would, I would throw in, <clears throat> you know, I've often waxed on about this, that in the, now that we're in the internet era and Charlie's right to say that all this predated the internet, you know, something that's kind of died along the way for the most part is what I call the thrill of the hunt, right? You can go on YouTube, you can punch anything in and basically almost anything that was ever captured on video is findable through YouTube. You're an internet search away from most of the things, films, music, whatever it is you could ever want to see. But in the 80s, in that analog world where you couldn't find things, where, where you got a lead from somebody that there might be a store in San Francisco down this road. And if you go on the right day and knock on the door, there's a guy in there that might have a live Bruce Springsteen recording you've been coveting your whole life. And by the way, while I'm there, I find an issue of Backstreet's magazine. Like that hunt and that excitement and that detective work and then finding that person who you meet at that in line at that show or at that record store or at that swap meet who had the same interest as you. And he had a connection that you didn't have. And through that network, the next thing you know, you're sending a letter over to Sweden and some guy in Sweden is sending you some vinyl. And like, you know, that might be a six month process to make that happen, you know? And I can remember the days when those packages would arrive and just blow my mind that I could access this world. And Backstreet's in a way was like, you know, the hub of a bunch of spokes of that wheel you had to send them blanks to get a tape. Like they wouldn't just trade you tapes. You had to send like four UDXL2s in postage <laughs> somebody to get a tape. That seems so absurd today. But just as Eric said, the waiting is the hardest part, but that waiting was also part of why you became, it's the same with tickets. Tickets would go on sale and you'd write for a mail order lottery to get to a bridge show ticket. And you just hope you won. And you couldn't buy internet and you couldn't even really buy scalpers in that day. Um, you know, there were shows you weren't going to get in if you didn't, weren't lucky enough to win the lottery or know somebody. Yeah. In the vein of making those connections, is that how, is that how Eric found you? Basically? Eric, I can't remember exactly how old you were when, when we met. I, the one thing that struck me is that I think it's true for John, for myself and for Chris, we all kind of, got heavily involved in Backstreet's when we were 23. There, there's something about that age that is an impressionable age for young yeah. men, Bruce Springsteen. But Eric, <laughs> you might've been younger than that. I'm a little bit younger, yeah. That, <clears throat> I'm about 19. I've gone to the University of Washington and I was buying Backstreet's at Tower Records in Tacoma where I actually worked for a year. So I was aware of Backstreet's. I'm sure I was a subscriber at that point. I had gone to see, uh, I saw three shows in 84 and then the two Oakland shows in 85. And I think Charlie and I first meet at a record show in Seattle in 85. Um, and we were both buying bootlegs and collecting. And I think maybe we swapped tapes and, you know, as you know, Charlie has something that I want and I can't believe this thing that he has that I hope that I get. And then I end up moving up to Seattle to go to the University of Washington, where I graduated from. 
And Charlie, I think I just sent him a note and said, hey, I'm kind of looking for a job while I'm up going to school at the University of Washington. And Charlie, I don't remember the conversation, but essentially it was like, hey, if you want to come pack up records and ship magazines to people and do database entry, I might have a job for you. And so in the basement of Charlie's house in Ravenna, Seattle, I would come work at Backstreet Records. And that's how it began. Yeah, I, I actually met Charlie at the Bridge Show in 1986. But if you go back to 1984, at Let It Be Records, um, I walked out with Backstreet's number eight. And uh, I couldn't believe there was a newspaper dedicated to Bruce Springsteen. I was just like, you know, I'd already been buying uh, vinyl and Eric and I were trading tapes fast and furious at that point uh, through the mail. Uh, but I, I called Charlie, I somehow got his number and I said, I, I have to talk to this guy. And I, I think Charlie, you were like, you know, how, how did you find me? And, and uh, so we met at, at the Bridge Show in '86. Uh, that was the first time you and I actually met in person. Good show. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, very. And then Chris, you you just sent a sent a note in 1993. Well, I would say uh, it was not even a note. It was absolutely, uh, you know, I am sending my resume in hopes of of coming to work for you at Backstreet's. I mean, what happened was I graduated college in 1993. And, you know, the vast majority of my friends uh, were either going to go to law school or business school or they had a, you know, a, a job lined up that a headhunter came and got the floor. And I was like, you know, the artsy weirdo who didn't know what he was going to do next. And uh, I was going to head, you know, across country to Seattle just because it seemed like a fun place to be at the time and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. So I was looking specifically for, for magazine work. Um, you know, I was a crazy music fan and, and wanted to be involved somehow in, in, you know, music press, whether I'm designing or, or writing record reviews or whatever it is. Um, plus, I want to try to make enough money that I could actually live in Seattle. So, you know, it was kind of a, a weird, scary thing to do. But, you know, once I got to town, I sent out probably, you know, 100 resumes Um but the only two places that I really knew about before arriving in Seattle were Microsoft and Backstreets. Cause I was, you know, a huge fan. I was like, well, hell Backstreets is there. I might as well take a shot. And uh, I think, you know, as I remember, I got really lucky because it was the first time at that point in 13 years of Backstreets that they were actually needing to hire somebody um, that they didn't already know, you know, uh, needing to hire somebody and th they no longer had anybody in their circle that they could turn to, like they turned to JP. And so my resume arrived at the right time. And, uh, you know, before you know it, after, you know, 98 other, uh, <laughs> other no thank you letters, I got a call from old JP at Backstreet saying, uh, you want to come in for an interview? So it was, it was, um, a very fortunate Fortunate timing. You know, I, I, I was essentially sort of on my last legs in Seattle, three months into being there. The money's running out. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay rent? And that's when I got the phone call. So, yeah, it's on your uh, lifesaver. Backstreet's <laughs> is lucky for that fact. I'm not sure Ooh, Microsoft's yeah. stock would be double the 250 <laughs> it was now if, if they had you involved, Chris. But um, yeah. Well, it was one of the, I still feel so fortunate 
like I said before, you know, like 28 years later, like, you know, this is my life, man. And, and I look back at how it started. It's very funny to me. Like one of the things I remember about my first interview was uh, <laughs> JP's I know where this is going. Knows. I was raised, all right. Uh, <laughs> you dress up for such things. So I came into uh, Backstreet's office wearing a coat and tie. And of course, Backstreet's at the time shared an office with The Rocket, uh, which Charlie also edited and was the big uh, bi-weekly. Well, at the time it was monthly. But anyway, paper covering the, the rock scene. So you can imagine not a lot of people there in coat and tie, except old CP comes in rocking his coat and tie. And I think at the end of that interview, one of you said, you know, ne next time you can, you can lose the tie. And so when I keep came the back coat, in, though. Well, that's the thing. Important. I kept the coat yeah. for the second interview. I still didn't get the total message, but you know, better safe than sorry. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access. Chris, you've really built the magazine in a way, I think, that maybe even Charlie couldn't have conceived of when he started in 1980. You have a relationship now with Bruce and his people that I think makes the situation currently much different than, say, the 1980s for Backstreets, right? Well, I think, you know, a lot obviously has changed since that time. You know, I mean, uh, for better, for worse, um, the Internet has had an incredible effect on what we do, you know, right? So obviously, you know, the magazine, you know, doesn't come out anywhere near as frequently as we used to, but we're publishing practically daily now on the web. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, the way I try to look at it is we are reaching the kind of people that Eric was just talking about, you know, the people who, who miss record stores and, the, you know, hardcore fans. And it's, I think, fan service has taken on sort of a, a negative connotation, but I kind of feel like that's what we're here to do, right? Is, is uh, to, to, spread the, uh, to spread the information to people like us who care about the things we care about. So the internet has been great for that. But the other thing that uh, I think the internet helped with in terms of relationships with Springsteen and the organization is that it, uh, it made fandom seemed like such, not such a, a weird and scary thing. You know, I think in the 80s, there was an idea that um, fans might need to be kept at arm's length, you know, for some reason. And I think that uh, with, you know, the advent of the internet and all these different niches and websites dedicated to very specific things and artists seeing how um, having fans um, 
online, doing things for you, uh, you know, promotion and publicity, all these things. I, I think that that notion collapsed that you needed to keep fans at arm lengths. And I think that they saw that, um, you know, maybe it would be good to have this bridge to the fans. And I think at a certain point, that's what helped us kind of get those relationships going. Like maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if, <laughs> if we had a connection uh, to Backstreet's. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, I think the one thing that Backstreet's has done really well with that is that um, the web changed information so that very few websites own news. The, you know, even the New York Times is their 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 their, you know, what they control of the news market is a tiny slice. But Backstreet's successfully owns Bruce Springsteen news like Rolling that Stone. Sure. Or there's there's no other website. And, and that maybe could, you know, that, that's, a, that's a lot of dedication and hard work because that might not have happened. Um, if you're a fan of, uh, I don't know, there are lots of rock bands that have their own websites that people turn to, but, but Backstreet's still, I'm not saying this, that the Bruce Springsteen official site wasn't built out enough. I'm not trying to imply that, but, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, Backstreet's is where, people turn for news that's happening about Bruce and and they don't turn to Rolling Stone. If the news broke today that, you know, Bruce is doing Broadway, people looked at Backstreet's first before they looked at other outlets to find out what the story is with that. So that that speaks a lot to how the magazine's been run the last couple decades. I also Chris, think it was a situation where you, you know, there's an old adage that you write what you know and that each of us has brought something completely different um, after Charlie uh, trusted us uh, with 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 the work, uh, you know, Chris certainly brought a design aesthetic that I could not have even imagined. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's funny, uh, Eric and I have remarked that because um, he still writes some of the uh, month uh, monthly nugs reviews, and I noticed that when 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 he and I both write, when when I write. And I put my work next to his. We we come at these things from completely different perspectives, which I think after forty years is is amazing. That and and we don't compare our work ahead of time. Uh, I, I think it's just a, a, a testament to, to um, the diversity now that, that that maybe we've had since the beginning, but that we uh, we continue to have in thought. Ron, give us an example of a of something that you and Eric would take a different take on, or uh, describe what you're what you're describing. Give us a. Yeah, you know, I I think that, for example, we both wrote um, uh, the Roxy seventy eight, for example, and if you just put those reviews side by side, we just had different things to to. Tell. I mean, yeah, I will say that um, I don't think it's talking out of school to say that that I, I look over Eric's pieces before they run, and I'm also editing the Backstreets pieces. And one of the things that's on my mind before Friday hits is, is this the same information, right? Um, will there be a reason for anybody to read both pieces, or are they both saying the same thing? And so far, however many five years we are into the archive series, Eric's take 
for nugs is always different than what we come up with, you know? And I think specifically it might be observations that Eric has about the, the musicianship as the show goes along, whereas we're covering more the history of the show and placing it in context. But whatever it is, um, I've been really <laughs> pleased just from an editorial stance that, yeah, we don't have to do any extra work to, to differentiate the two things. Do you get any feedback from Bruce and his people when those things come out? Did they ever say, hey, you said this about the Roxy 78 and we would have preferred you didn't say that or we never. disagree with that? Never, never. Nope. I mean, I will say that, that um, you know, you're talking about like how things have changed in terms of the relationship with the Springsteen organization. And that has only been a positive thing. In other words, I have never had an experience with them where they asked us not to run a certain thing or where they complained about anything. They understand that, that there's a separation of church and state, you know? And uh, in fact, I think they might be the first people to suggest that that they don't want to have any say over what we do. Um, they want to let us be journalists and, and fans and critics. Um, and I don't know why that is, whether it's, you know, that's that's the world that Landau comes from originally, but that was a relief, man. Like when, when you realize, oh, like we're developing a nice rapport here. Are they going to ask me to do something that I don't want to do? Are we getting in bed together? And yeah, the nice answer is no, we're not. Once in a while, they'll say something nice. They'll say, hey, really appreciated how you covered X and Y. But I don't think I've ever heard, you know, why did you say that about that show or about that song? Why don't you like Outlaw Pete? You know, there hasn't, there hasn't been that kind of moment. It's not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so has, has there been a change in the way that the Backstreet covers Bruce in the, in the 40 years? I mean, there must be something, but... Well, it depends what you mean. I would say that there have been a lot of changes in terms of, um, I mean, when, when I started in 93, through the, the entire Joad tour, my understanding from Shorefire Media is that we would get one photo pass for the entire tour, which is as like awful as it sounds. Like, oh, the Joad tour is gonna go on for two and a half years? Pick your show send your photographer and that's what you get. Whereas now we are able to send a photographer to every show and it's night and day. And so, you know, where we used to have to count on, um, you know, fans in the crowd sneaking cameras in, which of course we do and we still do. Um, now to be able to post, uh, you know, photos from that particular show to go with that coverage for each show. I mean, I, th I think that's vastly different. I would say the one thing that hasn't changed at all is that this whole thing is, is a fan driven concept. Like one of the things I remember when I first started working at Backstreet's is seeing stuff on like the Backstreet Records, I don't know, I guess the order form or the catalog or something that said buy fans for fans. And that kind of struck me and still strikes me as like, yeah, that's what it is. Like it's fans coming in and doing this stuff and fans reaching out to other fans and just the, the network of people who have started contributing just because they happen to reach out with an email and say, hey, I've got photos from the 77 show. Do you care? Hell yeah, we <laughs> care. And, you know, I think about some of our regular contributors now, like Sean Poole. He was somebody who did really well in our trivia contest. And so like this guy... <laughs> 
how does this guy know all these answers? Let's reach out to this guy and find out, you know? Um, and so it has just been a, a constant like conversation influx of like new people coming on board. We're getting new writers and new things just because, you know, um, it's that fan network and, and you, you meet these people. And there are a lot of people like, you know, who I was introduced to when I came out in 93 as friends of Backstreet's who are still friends of Backstreet's that we still work with all the time. Somebody like Bernie, you know, there's, there's just this, this big social network that keeps increasing of fans who want to help out, who have something to contribute. And, and I think, yeah, that started early and that hasn't stopped. And that, uh, that is such a credit to the artist, uh, you know, what he has created with all of us. Uh, none of us would be here talking about him or, or music or, or so many other things that we have become friends on and off air. And it's all because of, of this one man who is, who has created this amazing art. So it really just for him, it's gotta be a wonderful thing knowing that Backstreet's is out there and that this community is out there and that there is this group of people that he has reached in that manner, because I I think any artist, that's all they want to do is, is have their voice heard. Uh, I'd say yes and no, Hal. I, my, my sense is that in, in Bruce, Bruce's personality, he doesn't even allow that, that, that idea that there's a large fan. He he wants to be heard. He wants an ought, but the, 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 to some degree, I don't think you can even at some point entertain who's in the crowd. Uh, you know, one of the early people who worked at Columbia Records told me a story of seeing Bruce once at a show that was a catastrophe in, um, you know, the, the mid-70s that 75 people went to. It was just, you know, a disaster. And yet Bruce put on exactly the same show that night as he did the next night to 2,000 people without any difference in terms of how he worked it. And so I think there's something when you're, when you're, I'm not that kind of artist by, you know, a thousand fold, but my sense is the people I know that are, is that they have to separate themselves from that, or they'd be crazy if they were reading their reviews all the time and, and, and were obsessed with what people on the internet were saying about their album and records. So I think creating that community is really important and that Bruce talks a lot about that when he's on mic, but at some degree, I think he has to separate himself from that or he'd be really, really crazy if he were analyzing exactly what the results of what he's creating are. Um, oh yeah, that I agree with. I don't think he's sitting on BTX reading the posts there, <laughs> but well, it, you know, when you listen to his radio show, even and the, the, the manner in which they brace the East street community now is, as I think we all refer to it, seems to me much larger now than it was say 20 years ago. Do you guys agree with that? Well, I think how, I think there's a whole point about fandom that the internet changed, you know, and that you can look at comic-con or you know, if you, if you went to someone in 1987 and said like, I think the future of movies is going to be comic books. People would be like, you're a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> that's never going to work. Right. And now the, you know, the, the biggest driver in the entire movie industry is comic book films, maybe because CGI caught up or a million other reasons. But my point is more like what the internet did is it leveled the playing field for the fans to have as much voice publicly as the press did. And suddenly getting that great review was still important but getting the fans to love it and promote it and be the evangelist for it became even more important. 
And I think the super fan, which we all kind of represent in a certain way, and it extends beyond Springsteen or music or into other genres, but the super fan became something that people started to cater to because they realized like it was, again, it's kind of the, the hub. And from those spokes, people start to care and pay attention to maybe a little bit more peripherally interested. And I do, to some degree, when I think about what we, what we said was important back then in the 80s, like even the idea of like tracking set lists and publishing what Bruce played every show, that was new. People didn't do that. There was no such thing as that thing. That now happens as a matter of fact on official websites. People care about that stuff. And I just think we were on to something as fans, as maybe like the superest of the super fans at the time, or the ones who brought some scholarship and some journalistic expertise to this fandom that we had. And we started to talk about and articulate what was important. And at the time in an analog world, when Backstreet's has 10,000 people reading it and Newsweek has 7 million, it didn't matter. But in a way, there's been a great equalization that's happened since that time. And I just think the opinion of the fan has never mattered more. And you're right, Bruce Springsteen is not sitting there reading BTX, but what the fans think matters. And Backstreet's has always been the forum of the fans. And, and we've just been the loudest of those fans. So what do you think the role of BTX is now at this, at this, at this point in time? Is, is there a role? <clears throat> That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Coming from Flynn, especially. Show. Yeah, First so of all, Flynn, thank you for moderating the yeah, that is board. <laughs> yeah. You're I right. also want to say, Flynn, you're one of those guys I was talking about that, you know, yeah. you were a big fan. I got introduced to you by Bernie. I remember we ran into you on the street in New York and then you were doing your website, The Boots, and I got to see like how much knowledge you had and uh, I was like, we got to rope that guy in. You know, we got to get him doing stuff for Backstreet's. And then you did. You had your column. And, you know, at this point, you were a, a crucial part of what happens online, you know, keeping back BTX running and running better than it ever did. Oh, um, thank you. Well, yeah. It, no, I mean, we, we all appreciate it so much. And, and it, it just occurred to me that you're a perfect example of what we yeah. were talking about earlier. You know, the, the network of fans kind of sucking more and more fans in to, to be part of it. Um, but, you know, in terms of BTX, I mean, the reason we started it was because on the Joe tour, we were basically serving as a ticket exchange over the phone from the Backstreet's office. You know, somebody would call up and they would say, hey, I've got an extra ticket, you know, for the show in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you know anybody who needs it? It's like, well, no, not really, but if you like, I can write that down. And if somebody calls me up looking for one, we can connect you. And that started happening more and more and often enough that we thought, well, let's make a message board. And so when the original BTX went up, um, that's all it was supposed to be, was a ticket exchange to put fans in touch with each other. And I still think that's, that's a great part of the value of it. I mean, I love foiling the scalpers. I love connecting people with each other to get tickets for face. Um, and if we can keep that up next time around, I'll be real happy. Now, in terms of what happens on the other boards or on the other forums that we set up there, it could be a mixed bag, as you know, as you well know. What do you I think, think you know. the uh, <laughs> the function of BTX is? Well, I, it's the place where, where fans go. It, I, with all due respect to uh, Greasy Lake and Stone Pony London I, and, and groups on Facebook, I think it is it's the fan forum 
that has it has the most has the highest profile of any of these, just because it's associated it's associated with with Backstreet Magazine, and it's it's more or less public. Like I mean, I know many Facebook Bruce groups are not; they're very hidden, very private. Whereas BTX, anybody with an email address can join. Right. And so I'm sure <laughs> we always wonder: Is is Mr. Landau reading this? Is Barbara Carr? Is you know, is Bruce or is his family? And well, I will say that when when BTX was down, and you and I were going around and around with tech support for a month mm-hmm. and a half, I heard from at least two E Street slash organizational people who were like, "Hey, when's BTX going to be back up?" Wow. So there's yeah. that. And that, that's, that's I, actually I, I think pretty amazing. I can so, name no names, but <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it happens. All right. Well, let's. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit more, a little bit further now. Um, and then the way that you covered tours in the, within the magazine, like between 88 and 92, what was, what kind of changes were there in the way that you guys approached the tour? Well, uh, you want to start, Charlie? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, Eric is a big part of that changing. And, and Eric uh, has a, uh, you know, a, a memory and a reserve for detail that I do not. So just having him as a resource to come into the magazine and to catalog all that was, you know, suddenly you had, um, and, and then there are other people like deceased Jerry Hauser and other people that were part of the resources that were contributing. Um, you know, there were people who really cared what, what Backstreet said. And we, we treated the tours as if they were big news events for the entire tour and uh it was a rush to get a magazine out when a tour was over or some shows were over it was hard to get it out really quickly and to make it be timely but we actually did a half as mm-hmm. decent job of getting the reports out two or three weeks later um but you weren't going to be able to get that information on rolling stone or anywhere else you couldn't find out what blues bruce played nobody put sets lists up you yeah. know in in any stretch of the imagination at that point um, newspapers didn't run set lists. Now in a Rolling Stone story, if there's a Death Cab for Cutie show in Seattle, they'll have a sidebar with the, with the set list that'll appear in the website, but that didn't happen. So I'm not saying Backstreet's created that, but it, 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 some of that was, uh, was, was unlike other publications were doing about shows. Well, yeah, I think- you were definitely among the first. Uh, that was how I got set lists. I remember in 1984, the Tacoma shows, the, the, the crazy show that Bruce was sick and mm-hmm. you wrote about that show as a kid on the East coast, 15, 16 years old. That's how I knew about it because I read it in backstreets and I wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah. I think, you know, Charlie mentioned like random notes in, in Rolling Stone and, you know, I can remember them mentioning like Bruce debuting trapped on the 81 tour. I'm like, what's that song? I have to hear it. Oh my God. What is that? But that would be the only detail about an entire tour. And I probably got it four weeks late. Um, I, I was not a deadhead. JP's a deadhead, but there was there was scholarship around the deadhead, around the Grateful Dead set list that predates Backstreet's. And I think to some degree, we embraced that idea and started to apply it to an artist outside of the Grateful Dead world. And we made, you could argue that had been done for Dylan to some degree. And there's there's a lot of scholarship and deep history of the fanzines of Dylan that took some of the same approaches we did maybe Neil Young a little bit as well, but because Bruce, it was so much about the set list and what the rare songs were every night or what the changes were every night, 
you know, we were the ones to start counting those songs and start naming those set lists. And then by the time Tunnel of Love rolls along and, and appears, and I can remember, you know, Charlie's at opening night at the Centrum, and I'm just dying to find out what got played at that night. When I ended up going on the road, I saw 25-ish shows on the Tunnel Tour. That's when we kind of got this idea of like, we need, the news needs to move faster, right? The magazine can recap the whole tour, set lists, who was, remember, we'd always say what celebrities were in the crowd, what was in the sound check. We'd come up with as much like atmospheric detail as we could bring to a show because we wanted to do justice to every show on the tour because in part we knew there was some reader out there who was waiting to see what we said about St. Louis or that was me, Houston or whatever, right, as it may be. <laughs> and then, you know, we got this idea that like, well, what would be the fastest way to relay setless information? And that was the Backstreet's hotline. And the boss hotline became the place where you could dial a phone number in the pre-internet days and mostly myself at the beginning would update you on what set list happened last night. And we would have people kind of, even before I went to the show, someone would be on the road, they would call us up, they'd write down the set list. They'd call me, I'd write it down, then we'd go record it. And that, you know, it, again, it sounds so uh, archaic in an internet world where you could be like live broadcasting the show from your phone today. You could literally do that. But we would just try to update the set list as early as possible so people could find out what happened. And I'm sure, Hal, we already mentioned the Christic shows like that um, the hotline would wear out on those nights when like everybody needed to know what Bruce did at that super important <laughs> one off show. And the hotline became this crazy connection. I, I, I remember going to a show on the tunnel tour in Detroit, walking up to the box office to pick up tickets. And somebody overheard my voice and said, you're Eric from the back. <laughs> just, just because of my voice. I, so I used to call the hotline at like two o'clock in the morning. It was the only time I could get through. It was always busy. And <laughs> it was, I, I was just dying to get the set list. And it, it, it was really a wonderful thing that you guys did. What's funny about it is that the, the actual hotline itself was housed in this telephone room with rocket that yeah. smelled like weird paper dust and but i would say in a five or six year period we went through three or four different oh, yeah. tape machines and you know many a few of us on here have spent a lot of money on tape recording one of us in particular dropped a, had a lot of fancy machines <laughs> but but the, these things industrial tape machines and they would wear out they're mechanical and they would last for about a year of constant use. And sometimes at the rocket, I would be there late, super late at night. And I'd walk back to the backstreet's office for something. And I'd hear the tape machine going off and, you know, somebody yeah. dialing, it would be, it would be playing at, you know, two, three in the morning with, with somebody dialing in, but yeah, yeah it was crazy. It was. Right, so, so the hotline started in, in 88. <sighs> It's yeah, it started yeah. before that. Yeah, I think it started before, but that's when it really like kicked into gear with every night coverage. Yeah. I remember calling from Ireland uh, the night after the, the, the day after the first Tunnel of Love show. And in those days to call back to the US, you had to have <laughs> just a ton of coins. And I thought, I'm not going to stand here all day because, you know, I'm just going to get busy signal after but you have to feed coins in after each call. But I got through on the first try and I just remember uh, standing at the end of Iona Road in Dublin and just <laughs> hearing Eric read the set list from the Centrum. And it was just a, a, re a real testament. To the, and you're like, be true. 
Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Adam raised a cane. Blue know, left. Like, are you kidding me? Like, but you know, if you fast forward to the Count Basie show in 1993, the rehearsal show, I believe that happened on a Friday. And I came Ow. in on Saturday because we wanted to get it on the hotline. And uh, the faxes had come in overnight. And uh, I started to read the faxes and I'm like, I'm, I need to call around because I think someone's trying to punk us. Because, you know, I'm like, like, yeah, oh, sure, sure. You played bus stop and when you're alone and this hard land. Uh-huh. So, but that's, the other that's how it out. Right. It happened. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe hopefully one day an archive, any possibility? Good question, Hal. <laughs> so that brought that must have brought a lot of a lot more fan networking in into the into the scene with people calling in. Uh, it did. Got, it did. Yeah, I was going to say, Flynn. I think the other thing the hotline did is it put a voice to a name. <clears throat> it kind of humanized the whole thing a little bit. Like we were real people. You could hear our voice. And I feel like people started, you know, Charlie, we would field calls once, once like Backstreet Records was sort of properly up and running, people would call into order. That was primarily the way people ordered. So there'd always been a phone element to what Backstreet's was doing. But once Bruce got on tour and so the hotline started, like, you know, I, I have relationships with, you know, Johan Björnik in Sweden and Armando LaBianca in Rome and Ronaldo Tagliabua in, in, Milan, these are friends of mine that I've had for 35 years because at some point they called Backstreets when I was working there. And these are lifelong friendships with, with people who live in a foreign country that there is no way in the universe I would have ever known or met if not for that exchange. And that they felt liberated by, I think, hearing us to say, well, I'm going to go call not just Backstreets, but that person who I know is on the other end of the line. And, you know, that's one of the greatest gifts that this gig and this association and the thing that the four of us have done has ever given me. Well, I'm, I'm one of the people who called, who, had, who, who called just to, just to find out, just to talk to somebody like you. And I mm -hmm. talked to you, Eric, uh, right yes. before the Christic shows, actually. Oh, wow. Wow. I, thought, I said, do you think Bruce is going to play a new song? And you said, absolutely. And he did. And, and, you know, I remember yeah, calling him from my dorm room in college. Wow. And then I think one thing that that needs to be said about that, and I and I think it's true for the the four Backstreets guys here, is that you know this wasn't a commission sales job. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like you didn't get you know paid more of your your five dollar check, which I think was when Eric started. Uh, um, you know, because you talked to somebody and sold them t an extra T shirt, but we all cared about that connection. And, and there also was this sense too, that you were in a crazy way. It was almost like a waiter job. You were serving somebody and there was some honor in that mm -hmm. and helping people and making sure they got their stuff. And also it, 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 it did feel like you were, you were creating something. And, and there were people that I knew that this was really the most important thing in their life. Uh, yeah. what Bruce was doing and, and uh, you know, it, but, but with different personalities that were, were, it might not have worked as well. And it worked partially because we want, we all wanted that connection. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know, it, it was not a highfalutin, um, you know, operation. If anybody actually looked and saw 
like my basement when Eric first started working there. There was like a, a, a two foot by two foot window that was an overhang or that a house that overhung it. There was no light or heat. The Backstreet's office uh, also had no windows, not a single window in the Backstreet office. Um, and uh, the, these were not plush, uh, you know, deals. And, um, you know, in, in any case, it was not, but it, it was always kind of working class uh, to some degree and industrial. Um, but, it, but also it was a person to person connection. There were, there were times you talked to somebody that you felt like you were talking to your younger self or if not younger, that you felt like you were talking to the same person you were, but they lived in Sweden and, and spoke English better than you did. But there were some lunatics as well. Oh, yeah. uh, really? Oh, yeah. what, a, what a shocker. I am so surprised. I cannot yeah. believe it. Yeah, but people would come to visit and they'd call oh, yeah. and say, hey, I'm going to come to Seattle. Do you, do you mind if I stop by? And I'm like, yeah, sure, come by. <laughs> and, you know, you could tell like, okay, here we go again. They're going to be really deflated. <laughs> you know, they're, like, they're like, what's all this? I'm like, these are our poster tubes and bubble wrap. <laughs> you know? And they're like, well, you know, where's electric Nebraska? And I'm like, that's like, you know, vaults. Under the scale. <laughs> Well, you just heard it here first. John revealed where Electric Nebraska is stored. The breaking news on the Dumb But the Brave podcast. But all kidding aside, uh, that's going to be the end of part one. We had such a great time with them. And, and, I, and I've got to say, I don't want to overhype part two, but I think it's even better. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, we talked talked to them for a few hours. So, uh, yeah, there's still a lot yet to come. And I'm, uh, it's people are going to be into it. People going yeah. to answer. And just to give people a little sneak preview, the second part is going to include discussions about the relationship that developed between the Springsteen organization and the magazine. Of course, our favorite topic, bootlegs and the archive series, the growth of E Street Nation. And then, yes, we even hit on which shows we would all go back to if we had a time machine. <laughs> yeah, they, they did a contest back in the day, and uh, that was always a, f a fun one to consider. Uh, it was so great talking to them and all four of them just so informative and have such unique perspectives. And of course, they've been so close to the situation in various ways over the years. And, and still to this day, Eric, of course, is involved with the archive series. Chris and John are dealing with the magazine and website daily. And it sounds like Charlie still participates behind the scenes as well. So it's just amazing. And to hear about the creation of the magazine, really, really cool for us. Yes, it was. It's, it was an honor to be able to hear this, these stories from directly from the guys who <laughs> who created those stories and who lived them. And uh, just such an honor to and I could I could, could listen to them, listen to them for another hour or so. Oh, yeah. We could have gone on Easily. talking with them all night. Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> the conversation continued after we stopped recording. So come back. The part two is going to come out on July 15th. We're excited about that part as well, and uh, hopefully people are enjoying it. And with that, we're going to bring things to a close here. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and now a part of Evergreen Podcasts. If you want to interact with us, please find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast on the web or at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. We'll be seeing you! 
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.